Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're at tonight, and uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for this opportunity to open your word. I pray that you would teach us now as we examine this passage. We're so grateful for this opportunity, realizing that many people don't have it. And uh, I just pray that you give us clarity of thought and guide our discussions and our understanding of this word and this text. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2. We left off last week at verse 11. Yeah. I don't know if you know this or not, but we have a couple of new young ladies. Yes. Okay. We're not sure what we're doing here, but we're here. Okay. (laughs) Well, you're here, so. We'll have some more people straggle in. They sort of like make their way in. All the Baptists come in late, you know, how that works. (laughs) And they all sit in the back row. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, last week we went through verse 11 talking about the kenosis, and that's a very important understanding of the, the emptying of Christ, and we talked about what that meant. It did not mean he ceased being God. It did not, meant, not mean that he gave up any essential attribute or part of his deity. Rather, it just meant that he limited himself in some mysterious way that we don't really understand. Um, had he ceased being God, the universe would have unraveled. It would have gone back to nothing. So while he walked this earth, he was still God. However, he did limit himself. And particularly, he limited his knowledge to that which the Father revealed. Um, he limited the, uh, his will to that being what the Father had planned for him. And uh, he also limited himself in the sense that by being a man, he was able to die on the cross. Now, when we look at this whole notion of the incarnation of Christ, um, we need to realize a couple of very important things. Um, In fact, if you look in church history, Um, There were several councils in the church history starting in about 325 A.D., somewhere around in there, with Nicaea. Um, There were Chalcedon, Ephesus, a whole bunch of them. And um, they all were, they all really centered around who was Christ. What was he like? Was he God or was he like God or was he man, really? Or was he sort of like a man but not really a man? Um, exactly what is the nature of Jesus Christ? What was his nature? And uh, it's, I I think it's very easy to to get wrapped up in trying to unravel that, and I think it's something we really can't unravel totally. Um, There's a significant mystery about his incarnation that we'll never understand. But there are some important things that come out of these whole discussions, and I'm just going to hit some of the high points. This is not really to talk about the whole idea of his Christology, but just give you some high-level insights into what actually was going on in the history of the church when I'm trying to unravel this. The first one in Nicaea had to do with his divinity. Had to do with his divinity. The whole question was, is he God? Is he God? And there are some terms that they threw around, and you don't have to remember these terms, but um, it, it, it sort of, it, the whole argument at the whole Council of Nicaea centered around these. 
One of them was called Homo Usias, and then there was a Homo Homeo Usias. They're about the same, except one of them has that little E in there. And then there was another one here, Edo, Hetero Usias. Um, Usias means substance. All right. And homo, of course, means same. All right. So the first argument is there's some people that showed up and said, Jesus Christ, he is of the same substance, the same essence as God the Father. All right. He is of the same essence. In other words, there is no essential difference in the substance, and, and that's a word that encompasses all that God is. There's no difference in the substance of Christ and God the Father. They are 100% equal in every way, all right, of the same essence, the same substance. And of course, that would be consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity, all right? In other words, there's no, there's no difference between God the Father and God the Son in the sense of substance. There is in the sense of their role when it comes to the drama of redemption as we discussed, but there's no difference in them, their being. They're the same. And then there are some that says, no, 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 that's not, that's not right. Um, he is of a similar substance. It's, it's not the same, but it, it's, it's like God, but, but not exactly like God. Okay, it's of a similar substance. And this would be the views of many of the cults today. One of them, most notably, would be the Jehovah Witnesses, who would say that, that, he, God, that Jesus is God, but not God-God. Okay? Um, he's not exactly like Jehovah. Rather, he's of a similar substance, but he's not the same. There's a difference. And then hetero, of course, means he is totally not like God. He's of an other substance. In other words, he's not like God at all. He's of a totally different substance. And the whole council over however many days and weeks and months they met dealt around trying to iron out that would um, iron out exactly what do we mean when we say Jesus is God. And the two major players in this whole discussion, this whole debate, two of them, one of them was Athanasius. Athanasius. He was from um, Alexandria in Egypt, and he said, no, Jesus is God. Same substance. The other one was a man named Arius. And Arius, and by the way, there's a word called Arianism, which comes from Arius. And what it teaches is that Jesus is a created being. That's what Arius taught that Jesus was a created being. He was a being created by God, and then Jesus went and created everything else. So although they would set Jesus higher than man, he is still not God. He's somewhat lower than God because God created him. And the Jehovah Witnesses today are nothing more than modern-day Arians. They believe that Jesus is a created being. All right? And there are some other cults that believe the same thing. But the first council had to deal with this. And a lot of them, one of their arguments was, coming back here to Philippians, what did it mean when Jesus emptied himself? What does that mean? Well, I think the way we need to understand that, although he is of the same substance as God, he did not lose that in his incarnation. You can't divest yourself of what you are. You can't do that. That's not possible. God cannot 
you know, you say, well, God can do anything he wants. Well, yo. I mean, yeah, he can. No, he can't. I mean, he can't cease being God. He can't do that. That's inconsistent with who he is. Um, he, can't, he can't lie. He can't sin. I mean, there's some things that God just cannot do because they're inconsistent with who he is. And um, that's the understanding of the orthodox view, the Trinitarian view, which would say that Jesus and God are of the same substance. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is in here too. Of course, they didn't discuss that at that point. It was all about Jesus Christ. So what happened at the council is they had this big, long council at the end. Athanasius won, and Arius was denounced as a heretic. And today, if you go talk to people like the Way or Jehovah Witnesses and all of that, they will decry how error won out. They'll talk about how their side lost, when really their side was the orthodox side and the bad guys won. But, you know, they want to make it be what they want it to be. The problem is, Jesus, unfortunately, whatever they think or not, he is of the same substance. He's God. He is God. Yeah. In order to redeem us, you have to be. Yeah. To be pure and holy. And, you know, uh, other than that, you couldn't fulfill, you know, any more than we could fulfill. No. Yeah. What they do is they, they try to do him honor by going a step up and saying, well, he's of a similar substance of which we're not. Well, you know, you can't... You, you, you know, he can't go that route. I mean, he either is or he isn't. He's not of a similar substance, whatever that substance would be. Because then he said, well, what are the angels? You know, are they a similar substance? The thing is, God's essence and our essence are totally unlike each other. And the, the best way to understand that is, again, God is self-existent. His existence does not depend on anything other than him. Our existence depends on his existence. But he doesn't depend on anything. He just is. And so there's an infinity above what he is and what we are. Um, but that was the first great argument of the church. Is Jesus divine? And then they had other arguments. Later on, they come along and they say, well, okay, he's deity. All right, he's deity. Well, that must mean he's not really human. I mean, he, if he's divine, he's not human. And therefore, there are some other councils that came along, and I can't remember all the different ones. I had a chart, and I didn't bring it with me, um, of all the different councils, and they, they argued about, well, is Jesus really human? Is he fully 100% human? And uh, their arguments were, well, if he was human, he wouldn't be God. That was one of the arguments. I mean, he can't be both human and God. Another one said, well, if he's human, what about, you know, all the frailties of our flesh? What about sin? What about all of that stuff? What, how, how do you answer that? And the way to un answer that is, is this, and back in theology we had this big long discussion on this. Um, can, let me ask this question, is being human of necessity mean being sinful? Can you be fully human and not be sinful? Yeah, you can yeah, you can. What about Adam? I mean, you know, what we have is we have this whole idea, well, to err is human. We use that word, you know, to err is human. Um, and, and wrapped up in our understanding is one of the essential characteristics, at least as we have observed, 
is every human is depraved. You know, so far out of the, you know, 40 or 50 billion people that have lived in human history, all but one of them has been depraved. So, of course, we think, well, being human is being depraved. Well, no, it's not. Jesus can be fully divine and fully human and not be sinful. Now, how is that accomplished? How can he be fully human and yet not be sinful? Because he wasn't, he wasn't created by man to see either. Right. The virgin birth. Goes back to the virgin birth. See, when God created man, what did God give man the ability to do? Man and woman the ability to do? To procreate. All right. Now, what does that mean when we say they were allowed to procreate? What did they procreate? Children. All right. What part of children? The, the physical, the material, or both? Or immaterial, or both? Well, see, that's a big theological debate, you know. Um, in other words, when you have children, are you just the author? Are, are human parents, are they just responsible for the physical body of that child, and God has to create a soul and stick it in there? That's the creationist viewpoint, which says God creates that. I have a real problem with that because you'd have to say, well, God's creating fallen people. I mean, he creates a, I mean, he can't create sinners. So God creates his perfectly good soul and plops it in a corrupted body. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. And also the question, where, did, where does your cat and dog and where, where do they come from? You know, um, I think the best way to understand that is that God is not only built into the human um, body, the ability to procreate the physical component, but also the immaterial component as well, which is you, the real you. Now, how's that done? Beach? I don't know. I have no idea how that's done. I don't know, I don't know how that's accomplished. But I think within the, the conception of a human body is also the conception of the human soul, of you, of the immaterial part of you. And um, when that is conceived, not only is the physical body um, inherited from the parent, but also the flesh, the fallenness. Um, and there's two components to that. One is you're a sinner because you live inside a body that is corrupted, depraved, fallen. But also there's a nature within you that is fallen. You don't teach kids to sin. They do very well without any instruction. All right? um, it comes natural because that is what they are. They are depraved. And uh, so in order for Christ to be fully human, he had to bypass a human father from which that fallen flesh comes from. And not only that, by, 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 by bypassing that, he also bypassed the imputed guilt. Remember back in Romans 5 where it talks about one man sin in the world and death by sin, death pass upon all men for that all have sinned. And then it talks about how when, when a, I'm a sinner basically three ways. One, I commit acts of sin. Two, I'm a sinner because I am fallen. I have flesh that causes, that, that, that have these drives and desires that, that um, cause me to sin. And then if none of that is there, I have the imputed guilt of Adam. By virtue of my identity with the human race, I am guilty as Adam is. 
Pardon? She said guilty by association. That's right. That's right. And so in redemption, God not only does he take away my imputed guilt of Adam, and how does he do that? Romans 5. How does he take away that imputed guilt? Lays it on Christ. Christ gets the guilt, I get Christ's righteousness. How does he deal with the flesh? Well, someday you're either going to A, die, which takes care of that problem, or B, you'll be transformed. All right? And how does he take care of your personal sin? Cross. All right? So there's a, there's a threefold salvation. He, he deals with all parts of us to bring about redemption. So when we say that Christ was fully human, we mean that. He, he was fully human in every sense of the term. He, and, and the whole problem here, and, and there's like three councils, if I remember right, to have, sort this out. Um, did he have a human nature plus a divine nature? In other words, did he have two different natures within him? All right, that was one argument. Two natures. Another one was, well, did he have both natures, but one was over the other? In other words, were they equal, or was one over the other nature? Did one... Sort of like, yeah, he's human and he's divine, but the divine overshadows the human such that the human really isn't there. All right? And then there's others that said, no, what God sort of did was melt both of these natures into a third different nature. Okay? Well, none of those are true. Christ, how many natures did he have? He had, well, there's a question. Did he have one or two? He was fully human and fully divine. He had all together. Yeah. And it goes back, and then, and then of course, they had some other councils now that argue out, well, did he have one will or two wills? Did he have a human will and a divine will? Yeah. Do you have a human will, a divine will, or did he have just one will? Okay. And then the other question is, did he... Um, have two, let's see, is it two, what was it, two souls, I guess. Well, it goes back to the two natures, one nature, two wills, one will. The monothelites, they're calling them, one will people. Um, Christ was not a schizo, all right? He was not a split personality. You have one personality. It goes back, did he have two personalities? A human personality and a divine personality. No, he had one personality. And what was his will? His will was to do the will of the Father who sent him. It wasn't, he wasn't constantly at battle warring with his will. All right? Um, there wasn't two natures constantly at war with him. There's one nature. I mean, to feel the things that we have, yeah. he can't be two separate people. Right. He, he, he suffered in all the things that we would go through yeah. and knows how we feel in temptation, knows how we feel in pain, knows how we feel in sorrow. You know, he had to, he had to have, you know, it could be two natures battling against each other or all divine nature. What he had is he had all the attributes of deity and all the attributes of humanity. He had all of them. And he's, he is the God-man. Now, again, you got to understand, as you go home and think about this tonight, there are some mysteries here you'll never sort out. 
you know, you'll never figure it out. And, and we'll probably spend all of eternity trying to figure this out and never quite get it. But you need to understand he was fully human, fully divine, one man. Yeah. How was it that the sin of Mary was not transferred unto Christ? Because evidently that sin nature comes through the father, not through the mother. Because Adam was ultimately responsible, even though he made the first Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. That's that's and, and and that comes from the father. And, and I, again, I you know I don't know all the metaphysical things behind it. You know that, that I'm I'm just taking what the Bible says, and it says sin comes through. I think sin comes through the father. Adam was cursed, and that curse came through the fact that no matter how many children he had, they were all depraved. They were all depraved. But that was the whole argument. And, and, you know, it took almost 700 years for the church to sort this out on Christ. The last council was around 740 or something like that, A.D., when they were trying to figure all of these things out. And it was, it was a tough thing because, you, you know, you're, you're dealing with something that's very difficult for us to understand. How could the creator of the universe be walking around and nailed on a tree and die, but still hold the world together? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Now, how, how were they trying to say that, that Mary was the same? Uh, yeah, that's sort of interesting. Like that. Well, see, they already got him with they already got her with the Immaculate Conception. And I, I think they've already made the move that she's without sin with, with the, the, the decree of the Immaculate Conception. In other words, she although she was born of human father, God did some miraculous thing or whatever. They won't say she's virgin born, but they will say she was the, the sin nature was bypassed. Somehow God did something to bypass the transmission of the sin nature. Right. They would want to make her sinless. And then the whole code redemptrix argument is Mary is as essential and as much a component of your ultimate salvation as Christ is. And there's significant pressure right now to, to have that happen. Now, I don't know whether it will happen or not, but if it did, it wouldn't surprise me. But Now, where is that? Where is any of that information found? Yeah, he invented it. It's not here, but but they want to make it up. And see, and then here's the other thing. Some of the whole arguments went by. Well, okay, then when Mary had Jesus, what does it mean? What does it mean when we say that she was the mother of Christ? I mean, all she did was just just birth his immaterial or his material body, and he just sort of inhabited it. Is that what it means? Um, yeah, you get in all these metaphysical arguments, and I think the way to understand that, no, she, she bore the immaterial part and an immaterial human nature part of Christ, but coupled with that immaterial human nature was the immaterial divine nature. He was coexistent prior to his incarnation. Now, what the Mormons do now is say, well, we're all that way. You know, we were all, we're, we, we were all spirits floating around out there until somebody until our parents procreated a body with which we could now inhabit. That's, that's their spin on that. You say anything, Don? Okay, you were saying something. So, anyways, just understand that when, that this is, a, Philippians 2 is a very important passage when you talk about who is Jesus. 
because it, it really helps us understand what it means of his incarnation. It's probably one of the most, you could study this for many, many weeks and not grasp all the significance of this. He stepped into time, became a man, died on a cross. And because of that, as we said last week, he got something after his incarnation that he didn't have before. More glory. More glory. It's one thing for God to tell the angels he is loving and gracious. It's another thing for them to see God himself step off the throne, become a man, die at the hands of sinful men, and redeem them. Now they really see it. Now they really understand it. Um, and at some point, it says here, every tongue will confess he is Lord. And that's something very important. You know, people say, I don't want to take him as Lord. Well, you will someday. I mean, it's, matter, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, really, is what it boils down to. Why does it say should instead of will? Like well, it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess. I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I yeah. I just think it's a verb tense there. I don't think every tongue will confess. Someday Satan will confess he is Lord. I mean, you know, there, there's no way around it. He is Lord. And what does Lord mean? It means sovereign master. All right. I mean, sovereign. He is sovereign master. He runs the show. Then verse 12, Paul goes on, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here's another schizo verse in the New Testament. We have a few of those. Where there's apparent contradiction. Paul says, you've obeyed not, you've not only obeyed when I was there, you've obeyed when I wasn't there. I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean when he says work out? Pardon? Yeah. It doesn't mean work. Now notice he didn't say work for. And notice he didn't say work to keep. He said work it out. You have it, now Now work out that salvation. All right? And, how, and, how, and then the question is, how do you work it out? Well, it's God who works in you. Would you have to be how you live? How you conduct your life? Yeah. So, yeah. So the question then is, who lives your Christian life? Do you live it or does Christ live it? Both. Both. You can't, you can't split one off. You can't split it apart and say, well, I do it. All right? There's a group of people that say that. They say, well, you know, it's all up to me. I'm, you know, I have to live out my life. I have to do it. They're called pietists. And, uh, you know, some, some maybe good examples of that, like Puritans and things like that, say, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and have at it. You know, we got to work it out. It's all us. We got, we got to do it. And the problem is pietist quickly becomes legalism. And then there's the other one. There's, there's the other group, the quietist, and they're the let go, let God group. You know, and there's some of those. I, I, I talked to a friend of mine. Oh, man. 
and uh, significant patterns of disobedience is one problem. And I said, you know, why don't, why don't you just, you know, you got to do the right thing. He said, well, you know, God's working in me and he's taking his time and you're just going to have to be patient. You know, and his whole notion was, well, you know, when it happens, it happens. But he certainly wasn't active in his own sanctification. You see, both of these are wrong. One of them says it's all of me, all of me. The other says it's all of God. And then there are mixtures of these. You know, there's the um, there's the pragmatist who says, if I just find the right key, you know, the key to spiritual life is you got to get up in the morning and have your devotions before you go to work. You ever hear that? I'm not cognizant at that hour. You know, I can read my Bible and not know what I read. All right? Yeah, I mean, that doesn't do it for me. Um, others say, well, you know, you've got to pray three times a day, you know, morning, noon, and night. That, that's the key to spirituality. You know, they're, they're all these little gimmicks, you know, that's not going to make it either. Um, others say, well, it's psychological. You've got to get in touch with yourself. You know, you've got to find what your problem is and go to therapy and all of this stuff. You know, I think, I think what Paul is saying here is, is the key to spiritual growth is really simple. I mean, it, it is. It's really simple. And it's easy. And it's just, just obey. I mean, there's nothing more complex than that. Obey. That's all it is. But we don't like the O word. We don't like that word. You know, we want, you know, there's, you know for instance, the charismatic said, well, you just get the divine zap. You know, you get the anointing. And you, you get, you're there. No effort. You just bang. You got it. You know? Um... No, it doesn't happen that way either. Godliness is, is hard work. And I think that's what Paul's saying. Work it out. Effort. But you realize you're not doing it all by yourself. Because who's giving you the will to do what's right? Where does that come from? It comes from God. Uh, does this have anything to do with what you just mentioned? I think at the beginning, when you start to suggestion being in three parts, like, you know, we were saved from the penalty of sin. And this has to do with uh, being saved from the power of sin. Yeah. Because we let Christ yeah. to us. And then finally, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin when we're finally taken mm -hmm. out of the world. In this world, we are constantly struggling with sin, our own corruption. And uh, it's a battle. And uh, sometimes, it boils, what it boils down to is just obedience. That's all it is. See, we might try to make it complex. Try to make it really hard and, and really hard to understand. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Obe obey. Um, if my words abide in you and, and you do my, my words, you know, Christ often talked about that. Following his commandments, doing those commandments, following what he said, doing what he said. Um, we do everything today but that. You know, when's the last time you heard a sermon on spiritual growth and somebody says, look, just do it. You know, Nike, just do it. You know, a few years ago, there's these books that came out with spiritual disciplines. There's a big talk about disciplines there. And I know, um, you know, the celebration of discipline came out and spirit of disciplines and then disciplines of a godly man. 
And it was really interesting because I think that was sort of a new idea to people that you have to actually discipline yourself. People want to be godly and they think the way they're godly is they go to church Sunday morning and listen to a sermon. Well, that doesn't really cut it. I mean, coming to this class isn't going to make you godly. Really, it's not. Sleeping with the Bible under your pillow isn't going to help you either. It doesn't leak in. Um, You've got to discipline yourself. It's discipline. It's obedience. I mean, it's just, just doing it. And over a period of time, that obedience will manifest itself in your character. And you need to realize, as it says in verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to do. I have to do it, but the power to do that is not within me, it's within God. And I have to depend on His power, I'm not going to pull it off. It's just not going to happen. So it's both of you. It's, it's you doing everything you can do, and then it's God who comes in and empowers you and gives you the will and the desire and the ability to do what He's already told you to do. But see, you can't in and of yourself obey God just because you wake up and decide to do that. You need to depend on Him to give you the power to obey. And that's what He means by working it out. He doesn't say work for, just work it out. And specifically, how can you work that out a little bit? Well, verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Well, that'll solve a lot of church problems, won't it? Don't complain and don't dispute. Now, particularly, let's ask a question. Particularly, what was the problem in the Philippian church? What was one of the problems in the Philippian church? I beseech Euodia and Syneche to be of the same mind. Evidently, there were some personality clashes that were going on. We don't know the nature of those. Other than the fact, and I believe this, they were personality. If they were doctrinal issues of sin, what would Paul have done? He would have rebuked them. He would have came out and told them what was right and wrong. He didn't say that. There was nothing in there that said, now, Yodia, you know, you're, you're wrong on this theological point. So it had nothing to do with theology. It had nothing to do with, with, um, with uh, uh, blatant sin. It had to do with two people getting along. And one of the things he says here, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When you do things without complaining and disputing, what does that do to your testimony? I remember one hearing somebody was talking about some church split. I guess he had this really nasty church split in his town, so much so that some of the men went home, got their chainsaws, cut the church in half, and carted half of it away. <laughs> now stop and think about it. You're the average pagan in that city. And, and you, know, you, you look out your window, and there comes you know, the church trotting down the down the highway, you know. And the next day somebody comes over and says, come on down and join our church. You know, we love each other. Right. I've seen that. All right. 
<laughs> yeah, just he might go after you. You know, you never know. But um, the whole point there that he's making is that within the church, you know, your testimony, your light. And and I think the thing that I hate to say this, but I think the thing that a lot of Christians really haven't caught on to is the way they act affects the testimony of the church. It's not just them. I mean, people get the idea, you know, we get look, if I sin, it's just me, all right? No, it's not just you. When you sin, you bring reproach not only on you, but on the name of Christ. All right, you can't sin in a vacuum. And, and when, you know, when you are caught up in all kinds of fights and disputings and all kinds of stuff in the church, and then you tell people, why didn't you come down to church and worship with us? There's something wrong with this picture. Especially if they know you've got some fights and disputes going on. And that's why, I, you know, I, think, I think the way that Satan attacks the church most effectively is through division. And it's not, no, we're not talking about theology here. We're not, we're, you know, this is not the context. If it was theology, Paul deals with that. This is personality. This is people just plain getting along. And we're told in the Bible that we are to get along. Why? So that we would be a light in the world. People would be attracted by the way we conduct ourselves in the, in the church. Wouldn't you say that the majority of church splits today aren't due to theological differences, but personality? Yeah, I, I, think, I think just about all of them are. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't those that are, that, you know, the pastor goes off the deep end and denies the deity of Christ. You know, you got that happen once in the blue moon. But not, I, I would say most of them have nothing to do with theology. Has everything to do with personality. And I've seen it. I, and, and what we do now, we'll make it a theological issue, just so, just so we don't look really like bums, you know. But the bottom line is, it's some personality. It's some, you know, I didn't get my way, or, or I don't like that person, or there's some, some silly reason behind it all. And we make, it, we make it a theological reason just to salve our consciences and sort of, you know, make us, because we all like to cut ourselves a lot of slack, you know. You know, I remember the one, one couple telling me they left our church because we're charismatics. I'm serious. We're scared. And the reason we're charismatic is because a couple of the members like to raise their hands while we're singing. So now we're charismatic. They're going to leave the church and go somewhere where there's no charismatics. All right, fine. You know, my attitude is don't let the door hit you on the way out. I mean, if that's the way you're going to be, you know. I mean, you know, all the good stuff that goes on here, you got to, you got to go off on some silly thing like that, you know. Um, but when we don't do that, we show that we're no different than the rest of the world. We're no different. We're to be different. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I want you to hold forth fast the word of life. So that when Judgment Day comes, I'm not saying, you know, I, I, I put, put all this time into that church over there, and what happened is they split and they became a bad testimony in their community and nobody wanted to be around them because all they did was fight and argue and scrap. And so they left. 
You know, the whole point there is Paul says, I put a lot of work into you people. Now don't, don't blow it by falling into this disputing. And he comes back later on and he deals with that really quite heavily in, in Philippians chapter 4 about Yodi and Seneki to be of the same mind in the Lord. And again, he already hit this once in Philippians 2 when he talked about the, having the same mind and being of one accord of one mind. So he's been hitting this notion of unity throughout this book. And he wants him to be unified. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. If I'm poured out, if I die for you, I rejoice. If your testimony is pure. And the drink offering, the idea of being poured out as a drink offering, that was the last act of an offering in the Old Testament. You know, you did all of this stuff. And the last thing, you poured out the drink offering. That's sort of like the end, the final piece of it. And Paul says, even if I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering, I rejoice. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice together. And again, one of the main themes of Philippians is joy. Rejoicing. But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly that I may be encouraged when I know your state. In verse 19 now, Paul turns and talks about two individuals, one Timothy, one Epaphroditus. And uh, these are two very interesting men. Um, I was talking to somebody and I said to the person I really relate to probably most in the New Testament is Timothy. I really relate to him. I'm not Paul. You know, Paul was type double A. You know, he'd bounce off walls, endless energy. You know, a real go-getter. I'm not him. I'm not a Paul. Um, I mean, just a sort of, Paul strikes me as sort of an in-your-face kind of guy. You know, just not afraid to back down. And, and we need people like that. But then Timothy was more of a, one that comes alongside. He, he wasn't a type A. He was more of a type B individual. And had to be even encouraged to, to get busy and do certain things. Um, and actually, Timothy's a very important figure because it's interesting. When you look at all the books that Paul wrote, come on in. Um, when you look at all of the books that Paul wrote, most of them were not written by him alone. In many of them it says Paul and Timothy. Or Paul and Timothy and Silas. So in many occasions Timothy was with Paul in the writing of the New Testament books. And not only that, Timothy had two of them addressed personally to him. First and second Timothy. Another thing that's interesting is Timothy is called by Paul his own true son in the faith. And there's one other man that's called that, and that's Titus. And I think my understanding of that is, is at the end of Paul's life, when you look back, here's a man who spent his entire life in ministry. You look back, and how many people did he have that he could really, with confidence, pass the torch off to? Two guys. Two guys. That's it. Two. Timothy and Titus. And in fact, Timothy, if you want to 
if, if you really study this, I think Timothy was Paul's hand-picked successor. He was the one that was to fill Paul's shoes. Second Timothy chapter 2, the things which you heard of me, I want you to now commit to faithful men who will teach others also. So the baton was in essence passed to Timothy. Timothy was now to pass that on to another generation who in turn were to pass it on to others. And the whole notion there, he said, I want you to pass it on to faithful men. There's nothing more discouraging for a pastor, for anybody, to pour your life into somebody than have them turn around and punt the faith and go off and become a Buddhist. Which actually has happened on more than one occasion to many. I remember John MacArthur talking about a guy he met with 6 o'clock every morning for prayer for a year, at the end of which the guy quit the church, left his wife, became a Buddhist. You know, you sit there and say, good night. You know, I spent all of this time, and the guy goes off and becomes a Buddhist. You know, um, the whole point there is you want to pick faithful men. But Timothy was Paul's successor. And he said, I trust the Lord to send Timothy shortly that I may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Now that's fascinating. What Paul is saying there, he's saying, when I look around of all of the people that I hang around with, there's only one person I trust to be an accurate representative for me. Because there's only one person who feels about you the same way I feel about you. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Wow. Think about that. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy because you know what? I can't think of anybody else who would really care for you. Everybody else is out for their own interests. Now, do we have that problem today? I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. The whole point here, let me ask a question. Why are you in ministry? And what are they? Well, they're in verse 21. They seek their own. They seek their own. What, what's in it for me? And there's others. For example, I asked Pastor, I said, why are you in the ministry? Pastor Walls, we were out playing golf, and I asked him, I said, why are you in the ministry? I mean, you could have been a doctor. Why you, why you got, why you want to be a pastor? He said, because God called me. Because, I mean, you know, quite honestly, you're not to be a pastor today unless you're called. It's not worth it, really. It's not worth it. Unless you're called. I, I like the one, this one sort of uh, arrogant uh, seminary student was preaching at this church with a bunch of these old saints. And was, when he was done, one of the old saints went up and asked him, said, well, all I want to know, were you sent or did you just went? Did God send you or did you just go yourself? Um, uh, what Paul is saying is that Timothy is not in the ministry for his own interests. He is concerned about what Christ is concerned about, not what Timothy's agenda is. 
And because of that, Paul says, I can send him with confidence to you because I know that what he says will be an accurate representative of me. And quite honestly, let me tell you how, what Paul said. Paul was telling the churches, if Timothy shows up, that's just as good as me being there. It's just as good as me being there. You accept him like you would accept me because he and I are on the same page. But you know his proven character, verse 22, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Now that's fascinating. That's fascinating in this sense. I want to go back. I want you to think about this. this uh, these two words here that he, he uses to talk of Timothy, and that is proven character. How did Timothy prove his character? Service over time. Service over time. Service over time. How do you prove your character? Service over time. You don't go walk in and say, I have character. Yeah, yeah, okay. And immediately, you know, they become the chief pastor or whatever. He, he said, listen, Timothy's been with me in the long haul. By the way, how did Timothy meet Paul? You ever think about that? Where was Timothy from? What town? Trivia time. Town. Lystra. What happened to Paul at Lystra when he first showed up to preach? They first accepted him as a god, right? The next day they stoned him and threw him out on the dump dead. And went back into the city and finished it. Now how would you like to be as a little kid, have your first meet, you know, meet your, your future mentor. The first thing you do is see the guy stoned and thrown out of the city on the garbage heap is dead. Timothy was, look folks, Timothy was in it for the long haul. And how is he in it for the long haul? Well, he served faithfully with Paul. How do we know that? Well, see, Philippians was written around A.D. 60. And Paul wrote a lot of books before that. First and Second Thessalonians was written around A.D. 51. So for at least nine to ten years, when Paul wrote this book, Timothy had been with Paul for at least nine or ten years in the ministry. And if you go back to the book of Acts, you'll find that Timothy was with Paul just about everywhere he went. And Paul is saying, this guy's been with me in the long run. You know he's, he's got proven character. Now, now that's the kind of person you want in leadership. What bothers me today, and we've already talked about this, you've got a guy straight out of Bible school who comes in, you don't know him from Adam, and immediately he's the pastor of the church. And you have no idea if the guy is proven character or not. You have no idea. I've known people who've been pastors for many years that finally leave the ministry because they've had a pornography problem for years and years and years. And they were pastors. Proven character. Yeah, but, but here's the point. You want people with proven character. You don't want just anybody. And that's why I think it's so important, you know, in 1 Timothy, and when Paul talks about the character of the pastor, he says, first let him be proven. Actually, I think it's the deacon where he talks about being proven. Prove him. Now, how can you be proven? How can you have proven character when you hit a new church every three years? Because you don't like where you, the church you were in. 
You know, I mean, you know, you go to this church for two years, you don't like it, you go somewhere else for two years, you don't like that. How do you prove your character? It does prove your character. Well, it does, but not the way you want it, right? <laughs> <laughs> it proves who you are. You know, it proves your character. You know, the point is, a long haul, a long haul. You want people that are in it for the long haul, not people that, you know, they get mad and upset and they're gone. Boom. You know, one of the one of the things I look for, you know, when I have the opportunity to be in pastoral searches or whatever, one of the things I ask is, how many jobs has this guy had in the last 10 years? If he lasts two or three years, well, guess what he's going to last here? Maybe two or three. And something's going to happen, and he's going to be mad, and he's going to go on. And I'm going to be back doing this whole thing all over again. Get somebody with proven character. Get somebody who's been over it for the long haul. And that's what Paul's saying about Timothy here. He has proven his character by serving with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. That's talking about his impending um, time before Nero. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come sorely. I trust that God will release me so that I can come and visit you. But if not, I'm going to send Timothy just to see how you're doing because he'll let me know. Timothy was Paul's troubleshooter. And, and, and the interesting thing about this, Timothy was not worried about working his way up in the ranks. See, that's the problem. A lot of people, they like to hang around the big shot pastors because that gets them you know, up the ladder, so to speak. And they ask, again, you have to ask them the question, why are you in the ministry? Why are you there? Is it a job? Timothy, by, by the way, in those days it was not popular to hang around with Paul. You might get thrown into jail. So, I mean, it was a little different back then. And Timothy hung around with Paul and he, 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 was proven, he had proven character over time. And in fact, later on in the book of Hebrews, we read that he was even put into prison. Timothy was released from prison in, in Ephesians chapter, not Ephesians, but Hebrews chapter 13. It talks about well, how he was in prison, he was released. And then he says, I can, yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your, your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Who's Epaphroditus? Well, he was a man who the Philippian church sent to meet the needs of Paul. See, in those days when, when Paul was in prison, he was under um, sort of house arrest at this time, as we know from Acts chapter 13, which meant people could come and visit him and come and go. And the Philippian church took an offering, evidently, and told Epaphroditus, now listen, you go and you take care of Brother Paul for us. And if he needs anything, we want you to take care of him. In other words, this church, in a sense, hired or sent Epaphroditus to go and minister to Paul while Paul was in prison. We want you to take care of Paul. And Paul calls him some very high things. My fellow, my brother my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. And, and stop and think about it. You know, uh, that was, you know, the church said, Paphroditus, we want you to go visit Paul. He's in prison. He may lose his life. Now, if you're Paphroditus, what are you thinking? Say what? You want me to go and be with him? And wait a minute, you know, this might not be well. Well, he went. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. This is interesting. Evidently, Epaphroditus came to Paul and was sick. 
And the Philippian church got wind of that, and they were concerned about Epaphroditus so much so that Epaphroditus was concerned that they were concerned that he was sick. He wasn't concerned that he was sick. He was concerned that they were concerned that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Evidently he did get sick. We don't know what it was. We don't know what disease he had. But Paul says he almost died from whatever it was. And Epaphroditus was worried sick because he said, he said, what are the Philippian church going to think about when they hear that I'm so sick? They're going to be so concerned about me. And he was less concerned about him being sick than they were concerned that he was sick. Therefore I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. See, Paul sent Epaphroditus back, and as part of that, the Philippian church is going to say, what are you doing back here? We told you to stick with Paul. And so what Paul did is he wrote here, listen, I, this was not Epaphroditus' idea to come back. I sent him back. It was me who compelled him to come back because you were concerned about him. And he was concerned about you, and I felt it necessary that he come back and let you know what was going on. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with gladness and hold such men in esteem. Don't talk about him being a wuss because he left me. He wasn't. I sent him back. I sent him back to you, and I want you to receive him with high esteem because he was, because, verse 30, for the work of Christ, he came close to death not regarding his own life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. He almost killed himself to minister to me, and I want you to receive him very highly in the Lord. Now, this is all we know about this guy. All we know is that he wanted to minister to Paul, so much so that he even got to the point where he almost died in that service. And it's interesting because uh, later on, I think I have it in my notes in church history, there's a group of people that came around that took as their sort of patron saint, if you want to call it that, Epaphroditus. And what they did is they went to prisons and went to the sick people and ministered to them. And also, it's interesting, the root word for Epaphroditus means to throw the dice. And in a sense, that's what he did. He threw the dice with his life. Those days, you you know, you'd roll the dice, and as you threw them, you say Epaphras, and you're like good luck or whatever, you know, roll snake eyes or whatever it is you wanted to get. And that's what Epaphroditus did. He gambled with his life to minister to Paul, and Paul said, "I want you to hold him in high esteem," because he did that. This was a man. Here you have the character of two men who are in it not for what they get out of it, but for what. Christ and God has called them to be and to do. And I think the lesson to us is exactly that. Why do you do what you do? That's a very soul-searching question. Why do you go to church? Why do you teach a Sunday school class? Why do you pastor a church? Why are you doing that? For something you get out of it? for your, some advancement? Or do you do it because you have a desire to honor Christ and to be all that you can be? That's something you only can answer. I can't answer that. All I know is that when you're in it for you, 
It's easy to quit. It's easy to quit. You know, I, I often told you that uh, I get frustrated when, when, when I used to run the Iwana program. Here I had people come in, yeah, yeah, I want to be a leader. I'll be there for all year. Well, about eight weeks in, they bail. And I asked them, why'd you leave? Well, you know, God led me somewhere else. No, he didn't. God didn't lead you somewhere else. Why'd you quit? Well, you know, I, I, that wasn't my ministry. Well, you, you said you were going to be there. I know, but, you know, God sort of wants me to go somewhere else. Yeah, again, you blame God for you. The bottom line is if you make a vow, the Bible says if you make a vow, you better pay it. If you say you're going to do something, do it. On the deacon board, I had, I had probably eight deacons quit the deacon board. You know, they just get tired and don't want to do it anymore. But wait a minute, you said you'd be there for three years. Yeah, I know, but God's sort of leading me somewhere else. And what it really means is they're not getting out of it what they want. That, that's the bottom line. They're not getting what they want, so they're going to see you. And the whole point is their commitment falls through. God calls us to be committed to be committed and, and not to quit. See, the problem is we quit just before we went, you know. And, you know, you can't say, well, God led me when you've made the commitment to do something. Do it. Pay your vow. Don't quit. You know, what's going to stop you? Well, if we are in it for yourself, anything. You get tired, you get wore out, you don't like the hours. This isn't what you cracked up to be. Well, welcome to reality. You know. Anyways, any questions or comments or on what we talked about so far? We haven't had a lot of discussion tonight. Anyways, all right. Let's go on to chapter three. Pizza's being ordered now, so. We decided last week we're going to have pizza and you're going to buy for us. All right, all right, just want to make sure. We were hoping you'd show up, just. <laughs> all right, chapter three. My, finally, my brethren. Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write these things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. It's not a burden for me to write this again and warn you again. I want you to beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now this is, this is interesting what he, he's using here. Yeah, you think of dog, what do you think of? Pardon? The Browns. Oh, the Browns. <laughs> you know, you think of you know little fuzzy Toto or whatever it is, you know, on on the Wizard of Oz, you know, little. Well, back in those days, the dogs were mongrels. They roamed the streets. They were in the garbage. They were a very filthy animal. And uh, they used to refer to Gentiles as dogs. The Jews did. Oh yeah, it wasn't whatever it was. Uh, in fact, remember when the Syrophoenician woman came to Christ and asked him to heal her? He says it's not fit to take 
the children's food and cast it to the dogs. All right, and that was a common, common word. And uh, I think what Paul, you know, what many commentators say here is what Paul is talking about here. These these people that he's discussing, he's using three terms to discuss basically the same group of people. They are dogs. They're evil workers, and they're mutilation. Mm. All right? Or the false circumcision. Okay? Now, who would this probably be? The Judaizers. All right? Beware of the dogs. Those who call Gentiles dogs are themselves dogs. And beware of evil workers. They work evil, and they are the false mutilation. In other words, yeah, okay, they went through the right, but it doesn't mean anything because it is a false, their, their, their emphasis is misplaced because we are of the circumcision. Okay? And, and see, what the Judaizers were doing is they were going around, and, and again, we talked about this in Galatians, the whole notion of the Judaizers is you're saved by grace, but then you chip in by, your, by the rituals. You know, you got to be circumcised, you got to eat the foods, whatever it is, you got to keep the Sabbath. And they add all of these rules on, to, on top of faith, on top of grace. And Paul is saying, these people are dogs. What they did when they went, basically saying, you know, with their heart the way it is, when they got circumcised, all they did was mutilate themselves. That's what he's saying. It was just an act of mutilation. There was no spiritual benefit at all. Because we are of the true circumcision. Now, who's of the true circumcision? Well, he defines who they are. They worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Those are three major characteristics of true believers. They worship God in the spirit. Now, where does that probably come from? What verse? What? John. It's John. John worship in spirit and in truth. They worship God in the spirit. And I think what that has to do with not only worshiping God the right way, but with the right theology, right understanding of who he is. See, idolatry can be many things. You can get the right God to do it the wrong way and be an idolater. He can get the wrong God to do it the right way and be an idolater. The only way to worship God rightly is to get the right God and worship Him the right way. That's true worship. And he's saying the ones who are truly of the circumcision, the ones who are truly of God's covenant people, and that's the way to maybe look at that, God's covenant people, the ones who are of God's covenant people are the ones who... Worship God in the Spirit. And then he says, rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, did the Jew rejoice in Christ Jesus? To them, he was a criminal. He should have died on the cross. Good riddance. The bottom line is, you can't be a true believer if you don't believe in Christ Jesus. You know, you can't walk over the blood of Christ on the way to God and expect God to accept you. And that's really what was happening in Hebrews. Remember in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, if you trample underfoot the blood of the covenant, count on holy thing, there's no more sacrifice for sin. You have no more. 
You, you can't go back to the blood of a bull and a goat and expect it to work. And he's saying you need to rejoice in Christ Jesus and then have no confidence in the flesh. Now that's interesting because the Jew put all their confidence in the flesh, didn't they? And subtly, I think a lot of times believers and, and many times unbelievers do the same thing today. God is happy if I don't whatever. God is really happy with me if I don't go to movies. He's happy if I don't smoke. He's really happy if I don't drink. He's happy if I don't have cable TV. He's happy when I don't have a television at all. Because godly people don't watch TV. Yeah, you fill in the blank. And what it is, it's just confidence in your flesh. And the whole notion there is, is some notion that thinks, well, I can make God happy by what I do. I can somehow aid or contribute to my salvation, to my eternal reward if I do all of this stuff. Now here's the question. If you have confidence in your flesh, are you a true believer? Well, in this context, no, you're not. That's Because the Jews, what they did is they said, I am saved by my own human effort. I'm not saved by God's grace. I'm saved by what I do. And what I do needs to be, you know, circumcision and keeping the law and the Sabbath day and on and on and on and on and on. And then Paul says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. And then this is interesting. Paul says, okay, let's talk about this confidence in the flesh. You want, you, you want to match credentials? You want, you want to do a comparison here? Let me tell you about my credentials. Let me, tell you, let me tell you where I came from. I was circumcised the eighth day. What's that? That is the legal requirement of the law. On the eighth day, you were to sacrifice your male child. I mean, yeah, sacrifice, circumcise your male child. Yeah. What's interesting, you listen, you say, I said that? You were to circumcise your male child on the eighth day. That was the prescription of the Mosaic Law. And Paul says, you know what, on the eighth day I was circumcised just like the law said. And uh, I was of the stock of Israel. So, in other words, what he's saying, I was circumcised the eighth day, but all my lineage, as far back as I can trace, was all Jewish. There's not a Gentile in the bunch. I'm a pure-blooded Israelite. And then he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, when you looked at all of the tribes, what was the premier, most uh, red, blue-blooded tribe, if you want to think about that? Benjamin. Benjamin. Who, uh, who was from the tribe of Benjamin? What famous Israelite was from the tribe of Benjamin? David. Mm -mm. He's the tribe of Judah. Judah. Close. You're awfully close. David. Joseph. No. <laughs> no. Who's it? Moses' the tribe of Levi. Say it again. No. Yeah, who's the tribe of Benjamin? What famous Israelite personality? Joseph. No. Saul. Saul. First king of Israel was the tribe of Benjamin. And what tribe, what tribe stuck with Judah when the rest of the ten tribes split? Benjamin. What tribe had the, had the front, had the most honored position in battle? 
Benjamin. He's starting to learn. <laughs> I'm getting him conditioned, you know. The bottom line is the tribe of Benjamin was one of the most highly revered and respected tribes of all of the tribes of Israel. Paul says, listen, I'm not just of any tribe. I'm not a Danite. I'm not a Zebulonite. I'm not an Issacharite. Hey, I'm a Benjamite. I'm a Benjamite. And then he says here, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And that goes back saying, I'm Hebrew through and through, in and out, upside down, backwards. No Gentile anything in my line. My great-great-grandma did not marry a Gentile. No way. I'm pure. And then he says, when it came down to the law, I was a Pharisee. So, so of all of the people in Israel, who are the most fastidiously religious of all? The Pharisees. They're the ones that upheld purity of the law and all kinds of stuff. I mean, he says, look, I wasn't just a, your average day, normal, run-of-the-mill Israelite. I was a Pharisee. I was the most religious of the religious. Then when it came to zeal, when it came to my zeal for God, what did I do? I persecuted the church. By the way, just as an aside, so you know something, there's some people that say the church did not start until Paul. Um, how can Paul persecute the church before? Yeah, right. Okay. There are some people that say the church started with Paul. Okay, in other words, it didn't start in Acts 2. It started in Acts 6, 13 and 14 with his first missionary journey. Not so. Paul says, I persecuted the church of God. So a church was there before Paul came along. All right. And he said, I persecuted the church. Now, why did he persecute the church? Well, to, Israelite, to an Israelite, what was the church? That's a heretic, a bunch of heretics over there. And then concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, that's interesting. He says, when it came down to what the law prescribed as, as, as to be righteous, I was blameless. Mm. Now, notice what he says there. He says, I wasn't, he didn't say I was faultless. He just said I was blameless. Okay, um, I did everything I could to do the law. See, and, and I think that's interesting when it, when it says he's blameless. Um, the whole notion there is that I did everything possible with my own ability to do what was right. He's not saying I didn't make a mistake. He's saying I never intentionally made a mistake. I was blameless. See? Verse 6 says blameless. Yeah. So it's blameless. I'm not faultless. Okay. I was just wondering. That's all. Yeah. It, it just says, when he says, you know, I did everything. If it was humanly possible, what Paul is saying is that if it was humanly possible to be saved by the law, I did it. I did it. But I love verse 7. But what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Um, that's a very interesting um, thing that Paul says there because he's using um, some accounting terms when he when he's talks about this, this whole notion here. He says, listen, when it came down to the law, um, when it came down to righteousness, you ever see a balance sheet? You know, you go back to your old accounting you got your assets and your debt, your whatever it is. I, they, and they always do it backwards. They got the plus signs on the wrong side of the equation. 
A credit is something negative. A debit is, I don't know how they do it. I never did get the accounting right. But my checkbook balances. But he says, you know, when I look at it here, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Um, I'm a Pharisee. Um, I'm, uh, I was circumcised the eighth day. Um, regarding the law, I was, a, I was blameless. Um, he said, I'm, I'm a pure-blooded Israelite. He said, I was zealous for God. In other words, I wanted to do everything I could to please God. He sat down and he said, these are all the things that I considered important. All of them. Now, today we have different things that maybe go over there. You know, today say, well, you know, I tithe. You know, 10% I, I, goes to the church. Um, I attend church. Um, I have Christian parents. That's the whole notion of Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, my mom and dad are, you know, they're a deacon, and my mom's on the missionary board and all this other stuff. Um, I have godly parents. You know, I read my Bible. Um, I do, I do, I do. I mean, you could go on. And on and on and on. I don't go, I don't go to movies, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I have never taken drugs. I don't have a TV in my house. We have family all over every night. And you know what? When Paul looked at that list, and then on the other side, he looked at Christ. He says, you know what? There's no comparison. There's no comparison. Everything I considered important, I counted but loss. Um, I, I was reading this chapter for my devotion yesterday, and, uh, and I, I, I knew on that part, because in my Bible it says, um, in the, I don't know whether it's just the wording or whatever, but they, uh, Paul, he says that the concept of philosophy also calls all those things rubbish. Yeah, you know what the word rubbish means? And I just thought that was so cool. Garbage. Huh? Manure. Just, excrement. And the thing that I thought was so... That's what it means. The thing I just thought was so awesome about that was that uh, actually at the time I was I was discouraged about something and, and I just thought, you know, well Paul has all these things that he's sitting here comparing, you know, how much how much more little are my circumstances that I'm discouraged about, you know, that Paul would call all of these these good things. If, if you want to even call them that, comparatively to knowing Christ, that I should just worry about knowing Christ is all that is important. Yeah. And, and for me, that was just the, the neatest thing about that chapter. Um, I was having a discussion with somebody at work today, and we were asking, what, why did God create us? To bring glory to himself. And how do you do that? You know, um, it, it all goes, and I think, you know, what it goes back to what Christ said, and this is life eternal that they may know thee. And what does it mean to know God? What does that mean? See, and, and we talked about, we, we were sitting there talking about that a little bit, and I said, you know, I said, it's sort of like. Yeah, it's a very bad analogy, I guess. But 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 when you look at at like children, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I was talking to the, this man. He's got six kids. I said, you know, your little daughter, who um, 
she's a terror, to say the least. Um, I say, you know, you can, you can spank her for doing something wrong, but if she stop, scrapes her knees, who does she come running to? You. Why is that? Well, she knows you're the daddy. She knows you. And there's a love there. There's a bond because you're her daddy. And I said, as a new believer, what do we know? We know Jesus. We know God is our daddy. That's 1 John, by the way, chapter 2. We know our sins are forgiven, and we know who dad is. And there's a very, there's a very warm and emotional and, 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 and uh, subjective, wonderful feeling about knowing that to a new believer. But then as you grow and as you mature in your Christian life, what happens? Well, you begin to know about God, don't you? You know about God. You start knowing what, what makes God happy, what makes God sad. You know, if I, if I disobey Him, I mean, as a new Christian, you may, not, you may be disobeying God and not know it. But as you mature, you start learning, you know, well, you know, it's not pleasing to God when I do this. And, it, it's not ple and so what happens is you, you, gr you grow in your understanding about God. You understand the Word of God. You understand your own corruption. And, and as it says in 1 John, you overcome the wicked one. But then what do the fathers know? Well, they know God. And the point that I, I think is being made there is there comes a point in your life when you go beyond about God, knowing about God, to knowing God. And I says, just like me, you know, I've, I've reached the point in my life, as a, as a young baby, as a young child, I remember the love of my parents. And then I was growing up as, in my early teens and that, I, I learned what made mom and dad happy and unhappy. All right? But they were still my parents. There was that authority over. But now that I'm grown up, now that I've been on my own, they're still my parents. But the relationship has taken a much deeper aspect because now it's, a peer, it's, it's more of a peer nature, but I'm getting to know them. I'm not, I'm not knowing about them. I'm not knowing what makes them happy. I'm getting to know them. Okay? And I think that's what Paul is hinting at here. Knowing God. Not knowing about God. When I say, you know, guys say, yeah, you know, he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. You, you spout off all of these attributes, and, you, you know, and, and there's a place for that. You need to know what he is like. That's not knowing God. To know God is to know Him on a personal level. And how do you get to know somebody on a personal level? Time. Spend time. Um, I've got, I've, you know, I can, I, can, uh, I can relate to that. You know, over the last couple of years, um, there's a few of us that go and play golf every Saturday morning. We're going this Saturday, so pray that it doesn't rain. But we go, yeah. It's, yeah, it's supposed to be showers. I've seen that. But uh, one of the people that join our group is the pastor, you know, Pastor Waltz. He, we go golfing every Saturday. And over the past two years, I've got to know him. Not about him, but to know him. And so what that has done is when somebody comes along and spouts some drivel and nonsense, I know it because I know him. Right. That's not him. I mean, you can say anything you want. That's not what he, that's not him. You don't know him, see? 
Because I've got, and, and how do I get to know him? Well, you know, I didn't get a book on, on his life, you know, all about, you know, an autobiography. You just get out, you play, you just get, you spend time with each other. That's how you get to know somebody. You want to know God? Spend time with him. All right, but that's the goal, I think. And, and, and we were talking at, you know, today, and I said, you know, I think we're going to spend all of eternity getting to know God and not really get to know God. Because he's infinite, so you're never going to know all that there is. But you're going to spend all of eternity deepening that relationship with him. And it's not going to be boring. You know, you say, oh, I'm going to be bored in heaven. No, it's not going to be boring at all. But that's what Paul is saying here. He said, you know, when I, when I sat back and I looked at my life, I had all of these credentials. And then I looked at Christ. And compared to him, this was dung, manure, rubbish, excrement, pus. Who wants it? And the whole point he's making is the people that put confidence in the flesh are putting their confidence in stuff over here. They're putting their confidence in the flesh. He says, listen, when I saw these things, I count all things for loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but manure that I may gain Christ. Count them but rubbish. He says, that when, it, when, it, when I looked at what Christ offered and what I had in my flesh, forget it. Forget it. I, I, I really enjoy it. I like that. I don't know. You know, the brother, the brother, the thing that's the comparison. But I really like that comparison. Because it went back when you say, um, you know him. You, mm -hmm. you know him. And that's just like in Matthew 16 when, when he asked Peter, who the men say that I am? He said, Psalms say, he said, I'm not worried about what he said, what do you say? Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm not looking for reputation, but I'm looking for character. Because our reputation is what people say, but our characters, who, who we really are. And so I just got a lot of that. Just being, you want to do, like, can we have somebody do the pizza run? Uncle Al's pizza, you know where it's at? No, I'm going to let him go. I okay. Uh, I don't know where it's at either. Won't it's down here, it? yeah. It's, I, it, do it. I live right down here. Yeah, why don't you go do it? Why don't you get some pop while you're at it? I got cups in the trunk. Yeah. Well, we'll collect up. Get the communion too. Ah, get the We'll collect the money. We'll collect the money later. Don't you got? No, Pepsi. Get it. Get some Pepsi and some pop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's make sure that let's make sure it's still. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the, the point is getting to know God. And I found that to be often the case. For example, um, um, I, for example, have listened to just about all the sermons that MacArthur, John MacArthur's preached on tapes. You know, he's Swami John, you know. I've listened. To, I got all of them, just about all of his sermons, and I've listened to them. So if somebody comes along and says, "You know, well, John MacArthur said blah 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 blah," I'm sitting there saying, "No, he didn't say that. No. You have no idea what you're talking about. I know what he says. I know what he believes, because I've I've gotten the time, taken the time to know him. And I think this comes along with God. 
take time to get to know him. When, you know, I think when we get to heaven, God's going to be a total stranger to us. Because we've never taken the time to get to know him. All right? And uh, he says, when I looked at the excellency of Christ, and I looked at all of my own accomplishments, my own effort, my own energy, he says, I trashed it all. So that I could be found in him, verse 9, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He says, I, I, you have two choices. Yeah, when it came to God, I had two choices. One, my own righteousness. Now, how did he get that? By the law. Or I can have the righteousness which is of God by what? Faith. Now, which righteousness is going to help you out? Faith. He says, when I saw Christ... Everything that I had spent my entire life spending my energies investing in and, act, and actually having confidence in, I immediately saw that as a bunch of rubbish and dung and manure. And, you know, that, that was a traumatic thing for him. He'd spent his entire life working to be the best Pharisee he could be, and at the end find out, or, or when he came to Christ, find out, doesn't, doesn't hack it, doesn't cut it. He says, I don't want my own righteousness. That's by the law. Ooh, I don't want that righteousness. I want the righteousness which is of, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That is the conferred righteousness of Christ. You only get that by faith. And see, that's the, whole, that's the whole thing. You know, it goes back to this whole ledger sheet here. If you erase this, we look at it in a different way. When we come to God, or when we stand before God, all we have here is sin. And it just goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And you know what we have over here? A big fat zero. We have nothing to pay it. You got a zero. And when God comes in, he says, I'll tell you what. Tell you what I'll do. You give me all of this. And I'll give you Christ. Deal? Take it. That's what it is. Now, let me ask you a question. When it comes to salvation, is there a transaction involved? Yeah, there is. I give up all that I am for all that He is. I quit depending on my flesh to make it to heaven. I quit depending on my effort. I quit. I, I, everything I put my confidence and my faith in, I got to lose in order to gain Christ. And that's a very tough thing for people to do, especially if they spent their entire life thinking that somehow what they do is going to make God happy. It's a very tough thing to do. I remember my elderly aunt, who was a good Roman Catholic. I remember witness to her on many occasions, and she never could understand, so you mean that all of the things I do don't matter to God? Yes, that, that's what I mean. And it just, it did not make any sense. It didn't make any sense. Why? Because there's confidence in the flesh. 
I'm going to make God happy by what I do. And, and, and I think deep down inside the heart of all of us, if we look deep and long and hard enough, there is that, that residual desire to think or, or to feel that somehow I can make God happy by what I do. And you need to understand there's nothing you can do to make God happy. In and of yourself. And that's what Paul said. He said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. That means the power which is from his resurrection. See, Christ's resurrection validated all that he said. If Christ did not raise, our religion is vain. We are of all men most miserable. And it says here that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. That's a good one. You want to be a suffering? Suffer with Christ. Who wants to do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it encompasses that. It encompasses that. Yeah. Probably that as well. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.